Hiya folks, editing Kyla here, popping in from the future to make a, a little correction for our first episode on palm oil, which hopefully you've listened to if you're already here on the second one. In our first episode, we talked about how palm trees are harvested, and we said that the workers climbed the trees to get to the fruit, and a listener kindly corrected us on that. They don't, they don't have to climb the trees. Instead, what they do is they take a really, they take a sickle on a really long stick and just kind of harvest it that way. I watched a video. It was pretty cool. Now that we've made that little correction, please enjoy the rest of this episode. Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kyla and I'm here with Kristen. Heyo! Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption, and then we tell you what we learned fuck-ups and all, welcome to part two of palm oil. So if you guys didn't uh, <laughs> didn't catch part one, we recommend you start there. We talk about our challenges a little bit there, but it was pretty simple. Well, it was straightforward. I don't know if it was simple, but we, we <laughs> yeah. tried to abstain from palm oil uh, for two and a half weeks, and it just kind of drove home the point that it's in everything. Yeah. It is in everything. So in the first part, we talked about the environment and climate change, and now Kristen's going to tell us all about human rights abuses, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for this episode, I think we're going to do, we'll start by talking about the impact of the palm oil industry on people. And then after that, we're going to talk about the big sustainability certification for palm oil, which is called the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. And a big debate around that. And then after that, we'll talk a little bit about like whether you should be boycotting or trying to get sustainable palm oil and, you know, how you can go about that. Sound good? Yeah, that's perfect. Cool. Oil palms are one of the most profitable crops for farmers, which in part is a success story. We'll start with a good thing for people. Palm oil has helped to reduce rural poverty in places like Indonesia. So that, that's good. That's nice. And uh, palm oil has the potential to improve incomes and employment where it's produced, which is a lot of the times presented as a positive, and indeed it is a positive. There are millions of smallholder farmers that rely on palm oil for their livelihoods in both Malaysia and Indonesia, and then there are smallholders in those 42 other countries that also produce palm oil, just not as many. Yeah, you were saying in the first episode that there's three big players in palm in regards to like companies but then there, you said there was over a million small just farms that that produce yeah the palm trees as well so uh, that seems really diversified to me I don't know yeah it's just that they're so small and the large plantations are really big yeah <laughs> cool yeah yeah but yeah there's a lot of people that is sustained by palm oil production, whether you're working on a large plantation or whether you're a smallholder farmer or on a medium-sized palm oil plantation. The downside, though, is that the oil palm industry can sometimes hurt communities economically because they lose access to forests and it might not be compensated for sufficiently by economic gains from cultivating oil palms. When palm oil plantations go into communities, there's sort of two problems. Uh, the first one being the harms to workers in terms of the working conditions and the rights, and we'll talk about that a little more. And then the second is stuff around how palm oil plantations impact the communities. And in that, 
one of the biggest discussion points is indigenous communities. So we'll talk about indigenous land rights as well in this section. But let's start with working conditions. So Amnesty International has reported on the labor abuses on palm oil plantations, and in particular, they have looked at plantations in Indonesia that are linked to Wilmar, um, which is the largest processor and merchandiser of palm oils. They control 43% of the global palm oil trade. I mentioned them in the last episode. They're one of the three big palm oil ones. They are the largest, but there are two others that are also pretty big. So Amnesty's, um, their investigation was specifically looking at Walmart and the suppliers that they have, as well as like the subsidiaries of Walmart and the palm oil plantations and mills there. So on the plantations that they were looking at, Amnesty International found evidence of forced and child labor, gender discrimination, as well as exploitative and dangerous working conditions. Well, if this was bingo for human rights abuses, (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. And I also, I don't know if maybe I'm getting numb to this, but I was reading it and I was like, Yeah, okay, this sounds like three or four other episodes we've done, you know? Yeah. Big agriculture, it just kind of sucks. It doesn't really matter what industry you're looking at. Yeah, and a lot of times it has to do with the weak governance in a country. And when we talked about the clothing industry, um, we were talking about how offshoring basically took a situation where they were these hard fought over working, like workers' rights that were created in Western countries And then offshoring basically replicated those same problems in third world countries or developing countries, whatever your preferred terminology is for those countries. And I mean, palm oil, there wasn't like offshoring because you you, like just can't grow palm oil. (laughs) You can't grow oil palms in Canada. It just wouldn't work. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) But I'm sure Saskatchewan would be the best at it if we could. (laughs) This is turning into a pro Saskatchewan. I don't think I've ever been to Saskatchewan, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) it's a lovely province, but blowing past that. Sorry, Saskatchewan. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My point being, the big problem is really that you have governments that aren't willing to step in and these big multinational corporations that they have suppliers or subsidiaries. And so there's like a veil of it not being their fault. And they're like, well, we just don't know. But really, like, they should be held to standards that are higher than that. And that is where a lot of the problems come from. In palm oil, as with a lot of other industries, and especially industries in agriculture, I think we were talking in one of our first episodes about how agriculture is one of the most dangerous industries people can work in. So Amnesty concluded that Basically, the abuses that they had documented were not isolated incidents, but rather they were linked to systemic business practices of Wilmar and its subsidiaries and suppliers. So some of those include the low-level wages that they provide, as well as the use of targets and something called piece rates, which is basically when workers are paid based on tasks that they've completed rather than hours that they've worked. And All of that is in like a really complicated system of financial and other penalties for the workers. And they basically concluded that that system is what is creating the biggest source of oppression for workers. So because of those systems, workers that don't meet their targets get their salaries, which are already really low salaries, they get them deducted. Targets are set by individual companies, and I'm going to quote from Amnesty International here, so this is not my opinion, this is what Amnesty International found. The targets set by the companies, quote, 
appear to be set arbitrarily to meet companies' needs rather than being based on a realistic calculation of how much workers can do in their working hours. So they don't, they're not like commensurate with what a reasonable working day is, is basically the point of that. And because of the targeting system, the workers on the plantations will often get help from their spouses, children, and others to complete tasks. And then they're not paid at all. Yeah, they're not paid at all. Um, so that's a problem, first of all. And secondly, now you've got children working in an incredibly dangerous job. So that was one of the things that Amnesty International documented was the involvement of children in hazardous tasks on palm oil plantations, which, by the way, is illegal under Indonesian law. But nobody's enforcing it. No. And, <laughs> and, and, and they're undocumented because they're just coming in to help their family meet these targets that they can't reach. Well, sometimes they're from the community, but sometimes it's internal migration. Yeah. So, but they don't have a formal employment relationship with a company, although the structure of how workers are paid makes it necessary that, that workers are sort of soliciting help from their partners, which for harvesters, the amnesty reports that it was always men. So, which, you know. We'll talk about gender discrimination a little bit more later, but so their wives are helping out with it. Their kids are helping out with it. Sometimes the kids are as young as eight years old. And uh, essentially, Amnesty found that workers and especially women were employed under casual work arrangements, which made them really vulnerable to abuse. So they found that typically the arrangement was um, like women were typically working in roles that were called plant maintenance, which I think is just, you know, keeping the palms alive and healthy. And men were typically working as harvesters, so the people going up the trees and, you know, cutting off the fruit bunches and whatnot. And while the harvesters were typically employed as formal employees and permanent employees, the women almost always were casual employees and didn't get benefits or anything like that. So... That's sort of a gender disparity, and it was a way that was used to it sort of exploit women workers in a way that the men didn't experience as much. And then they're coming in to help their husbands and working even more hours and completely unpaid. That's, ah, I'm getting anxiety <laughs> just thinking about this. Like, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, the other thing is that employers can penalize workers for failing to meet their targets or for mistakes in their work, like if they pick unripe fruit. And that penalty usually is financial in nature. The penalties, though, aren't super transparent, which allows employers to basically exact free work from the workers under the threat of loss of pay or employment. So Amnesty also documented evidence of that, which they consider to constitute forced labor. So, I mean, people working for no pay, they don't have a choice. I, I think that counts as forced labor, too. So, yeah, working conditions on plantations, not super great. I think this is in large part on the large plantations. So smallholder plantations may not have these challenges. Although I think in a lot of cases, the wages are still pretty low there because, I mean, even though palm oil is a fairly profitable crop, the margins on agriculture are generally pretty low, especially in uh, developing countries where agriculture tends to be net taxed rather than net subsidized, which is what 
the situation is here in Canada. So, yay. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about Indigenous peoples, though, because that is an important thing to talk about for palm oil. Um, Indigenous people are losing their land to palm oil plantations, which, I mean, in the last episode, we talk about all the environmental impacts of these forests being clear-cutted, right? Part of the context that we should add is that in a lot of cases, this is like the traditional and current land that Indigenous people are living on and where they're getting their livelihoods from. So land use is particularly a problem in Indonesia, basically because land use rights are often disputed due to conflicts between customary land rights. So Indigenous peoples will often have a legal right to have a certain plot of land um, and formal property ownership. So who owns sort of like the deed to the property and the Indonesian government is also sort of, they're sort of on the side of the formal property ownership. You know, they're, they're more willing to recognize those rules, even when there are court rulings against um, plantation owners and like for indigenous peoples. It's a big problem. So it's like a big I mean, we talk, we've talked in previous episodes about how governance challenges are the hardest ones, and this is another one of those. It's a combination of weak laws, poor government oversight, corruption, and the failure of palm-producing companies to fulfill the duties that they have for human rights due diligence. And all of those things together have led to a loss of land and livelihood for Indigenous peoples in Indonesia. So it's not like one thing that's causing it, but it's all of those things together. And in addition, companies have failed to consult with Indigenous peoples and to provide just and fair compensation for losses that are suffered. And that in some, times, in some cases isn't just um, a loss of land or income. It can also be a source of violence. So in some cases, Indigenous peoples are forcefully re- removed from their lands, which is one reason that the Rainforest Action Network has used the term conflict palm oil to describe the industry. Private armies and militia groups are deployed sometimes, and community members have been killed in Indonesia over these land disputes. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, and there are upwards of 600 ongoing land disputes between palm oil companies and rural communities. Just in Indonesia or everywhere? Uh, I think this was specific to Indonesia, but there may be more. So in addition to those land issues, there's also like the, the other effects that happen when there's a plantation that goes up. The main one that I was able to find is that sometimes when palm oil plantations are created on like steep terrain, that can cause soil erosion and it can make communities at high risk of flooding. So that's a problem. That seemed to be sort of the main issue aside from losing access to the forest and losing the the land itself. Food security, though, is another problem. So this is this is true for all cash crops. So you can think about sugar and coffee and things like that in the same kind of vein. But the conversion of agricultural land to palm oil can hurt local food security, basically because it means that you're diverting production to a crop that isn't as good for feeding local communities. And then also because there's a higher international price, it can sometimes price consumers out of in the area out of being able to buy it. So that's part of the reason that biofuels are being sort of seen as a a problem for palm oil, because biofuels are pushing up the demand for palm oil even more than it was already up. And that's making it even more difficult for people in surrounding communities to be able to afford this 
plant that's being grown right in their backyard. And in the meantime, it's taking up productive land that they could otherwise use to grow something that might feed them. Hmm. I don't, I don't <laughs> like that. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I'm always really quiet when we do, when we talk about like the, the people and, and human rights side of stuff. Cause I just, I feel like that's like where the biggest gap in my knowledge is. And so it's really hard for like, I don't know what to say. Like that sucks. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I mean, we're through the human rights part, though. We're going to talk about the roundtable on sustainable palm oil next. Really? Because I feel like yeah. that's going to be more positive or... Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. If you need me, I'll just be lying down in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> so had you heard of the um, roundtable on sustainable palm oil or the RSPO, as I'll call them from now on? Yes, because you mentioned it in our first episode. <laughs> But other than that, no. no. It's not a very well-known label, so it's that's not super surprising. I don't think I've ever seen it even. No, and uh, we'll talk about why that is a little bit later, but you're not likely to have seen it. Not a lot of companies put it on their products, even if they are certified. So the RSPO, it's basically a sustainable palm oil certification. It was created in 2004, and it actually has a pretty similar story to some of the other major eco labels that are out there. So you might remember the Marine Stewardship Council from our seafood episode. And the RSPO is founded in sort of a similar way. It's a collaboration between the World Wildlife Fund and Unilever. Those are two players that are also involved in the founding of the Marine Stewardship Council. And then in the case of RSPO, there's also Asian producers and a few other Western brands like Nestle, Tesco, and Cargill, which we will all remember from the COVID-19 outbreaks of this year. I just got to shout out Cargill in a bad way whenever I can. <laughs> Every time you get an opportunity. <laughs> so yeah, RSPO has managed sustainability standards for palm oil production since 2008. It took them a few years. This is, this is the case with all eco-labels. They sort of get founded and then it takes them a few years to have a bunch of meetings and set up standards because there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to go into that. But they started the sustainability uh, standard in 2008. The backbone of the RSPO standard is a generic set of principles and criteria, and those were adopted in 2005. And they have eight core principles, and they're basically like, what are the things broadly that companies need to adhere to to get the standard? So it's things like transparency, environmental responsibility, they phrase it as responsible consideration of employees, smallholders, and individual communities. But that basically is like, how does it affect socially the sort of fabric of communities around it and what are workers' rights like? Uh, the responsible development of new planting. So that's like, where can you put palm oil plantations? Can you cut down peatlands? Things like that. As well as like following best practices and don't break the law. That's one of their principles. <laughs> They phrase it as compliance with applicable laws and regulations. <laughs> That's such a low bar. Such a low bar, but probably a good rule. <laughs> and I mean, as that Amnesty International report is showing, the companies aren't really even doing that, so... Yeah, exactly. Like, the fact that they have to put it in there sucks, but it's so necessary. Yes. So, basically, they've got those eight pri um, principles. I didn't say all of them in that explanation, but anyway... Uh, each of those principles has corresponding criteria, which are like much more specific rules. And then 
those criteria are then made even more sort of practical on a national and then local basis. So everything kind of, it's coherent. So everything in the RSPO, the idea is it sort of means the same thing, but then it's suited to local conditions on the margins, you know? Well, that sounds great. That's, it does. That all sounds good. <laughs> and that's, I mean, if people are are wondering like what an eco-label is and how it works, that tends to be the structure of how it's set up. Um, and the RSPO is something called a multi-stakeholder label, which is what you want. It involves a bunch of different organizations. Although that can still, like, it's that still might not necessarily mean that um, communities and NGOs get a strong voice. It just means they are involved in some way. RSPO basically creates standards for the growth of oil palms as well as the palm oil milling process. So, you know, once you cut down the fruit, you have to get them to a mill to get processed right away. So RSPO covers both of those. And it also covers something called the chain of custody. And anytime you hear that, that just means like how the palm oil gets traced from step one to step like whatever, you know, from when it's grown to when it goes to the store. Although with RSPO, they're not super great at this. Mm, I can't think of very many labels that are. That's hard. It's hard to trace stuff. Our world is too globalized. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Uh, maybe we'll do a, a conflict minerals episode because I know a lot more detail on why it's complicated. It kind of seems abstract, like you should be able to figure it out, but the practicalities do sometimes make it more complicated. I mean, we should definitely do an episode <laughs> on conflict minerals. <laughs> yeah. Maybe when we do our electronics, I don't know, although that's going to be its own thing too. Oh my gosh. Episodes for years. <laughs> so... <laughs> There are also separate standards, and this was actually just created last year or the year before. It's very recent. There's, there's a separate standard for smallholder palm farmers, and that's basically responding to the challenge that small producers can have in obtaining sustainability certifications, right? Because when, you, when you're trying to get certified as a producer, you usually have to pay for audits that are external, and you also have to when you decide to sign up, meet all of their standards. And that's good because we want or organizations that are certified to actually meet the standards that they say. But it can be a challenge for small producers, especially small farmer producers in developing countries, to first of all be able to pay for the auditors and to see the value of doing that, especially when you're selling to a market that doesn't care. Um, and then... Also to like be able to get the paperwork for the management processes and to have everything sort of all your ducks in a row, that can be really hard. So the RSPO created the smallholder standard to basically ask smallholders to make improvements over time rather than asking them to do everything up front. And the idea is let's bring these smallholders into, into the, the standard as well so that we can get more of the industry into the standard, which then means we can shape palm oil as a whole, which is a challenge because right now only 14% of palm oil is RSPO certified. Not a lot. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so RSPO is the largest and by many accounts, the most robust palm oil certification that's available, but it has still been widely criticized. So we'll have to talk about those criticisms. The, the first criticism that I want to cover for the RSPO so it starts with a thing that sounds really good. I had mentioned that RSPO is a multi-stakeholder organization, so that means there are different voices involved in defining what the rules are, which sounds really good. And 
There are basically seven groups of stakeholders that are included in RSPO's General Assembly, which is the body that sets the rules. So that includes palm oil growers, which is probably good. You want that. Palm oil processors and traders, consumer goods manufacturers, retailers, banks and investors, and then environmental and nature NGOs and social development NGOs. Do you notice anything about that list? Uh, no. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. Um, I noticed a couple of things when I was thinking about it today. Okay, good. I think you you you're you're more versed in this stuff. You're gonna stuff's gonna pop out at you that would just go right over my head. I think. I just I spent a lot of t- time thinking about this, but uh, one is that that list includes quite a lot on the business side and not very much on the social responsibility, environmental responsibility oh, side, right? Like yeah. of the seven groups, five of them are business side. Okay, yeah, you're right, yeah. Which can be a problem. It also doesn't include unions. It also doesn't include indigenous peoples, maybe in social development NGOs, but um, not explicitly. Yeah, of course. Yeah, those are things that you would want. I I, I don't know, yeah, yeah, obviously. You're right, my bad. <laughs> Yeah, and I I mean, I think it's, so the RSPO has been criticized for being industry dominated and for failing to include key stakeholders. And when I first saw that and I was like, oh, it's a multi-stakeholder group, though it should have all those voices. But I understand the criticisms now because really like you're technically multi-stakeholder, but you're missing a lot of groups. And also I think those groups don't tend to have very much power. So some of the criticisms say that the missing voices include smallholder producers, which is maybe a thing the standard's thinking about for the future, so that would be good. Labor unions, uh, social and environmental groups, which do formally have some role but are outvoted by the industry interest. Indigenous peoples and organizations, and then also women's groups, which is relevant because um, there has been evidence of gender discrimination on plantations. Yeah, all of those things would be great. You're right. <laughs> I honestly, I didn't even think of unions because I didn't think of the industry as a place where unions would even exist. Yeah, but I mean that's part of the problem, right? Like, if yeah, you're, if you're the RSPO is a really ambitious standard in a certain sense. It, like, we talked about the Marine Stewardship Council. It really only covers environmental issues. And then, like, if you're caught human trafficking, you can't get certified, which <laughs> we talked about as a major weakness of the standard. RSPO doesn't have that conceptual standard. It does try to cover environmental and social issues. But if you're not involving unions and if you're not allowing, like, putting in standards on, like, collective representation, how are you really meaningfully getting workers' rights? If you're not including Indigenous peoples formally as having a voice, how are you dealing with Indigenous rights and communities that are affected? And, you know, if you're not meaningfully involving environmental and social NGOs to the point where they actually have power, then, you know, how are the standards actually reflecting the push that they need to? And I think that's where some of the debate comes in on that. And one of the ways that that practically has an impact uh, is that only a small proportion of palm oil-related land use conflicts are sufficiently acknowledged and resolved within the RSPO's institutional dispute resolution mechanism. So if you had a more powerful voice for Indigenous peoples, I think you might not see that problem as much. And that's also the viewpoint of critics of the RSPO. So some of the major critics of the RSPO include Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, although they... 
they are also trying to work to improve the standard. They they just are willing to sort of like kick it as well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> trying to push it to be better. <laughs> so one of the big things that they push the RSPO on is its low stringency of compliance enforcement, which is a really big problem. If you have a standard and you're not enforcing it adequately, you don't really have a standard. Yeah. So from that Amnesty International report that I was quoting before, they came to the conclusion, because a lot of the plantations they were looking at were actually RSPO certified, which is supposed to have workers' rights in it. Oh, no. Yeah. So they concluded that the RSPO is acting as a shield, which deflects greater scrutiny of Wilmar's and other companies' practices. And that's a quote from Amnesty International. That's not my opinion. So they're getting away with this stuff because nobody's looking at them because they figure the RSPO has already looked at them. Yeah, and it, it like majorly deflects attention not only from what the companies are doing, so it, it makes it more difficult for you to say, hey, Unilever, you got to get better, because Unilever can say, oh, we're members of the RSPO, which has got the World Wildlife Fund in it, right? Like That's a really good reputational shield for companies like that. On the other hand, having the RSPO also deflects attention from the real need for public reform in places like Indonesia and Malaysia, where you really need better laws, and that's the main problem. So that's sort of the second criticism, is that the RSPO standard, it sort of gives a good excuse for national governments not to do anything. Then critics have pointed to weaknesses within the standards themselves. So actually, the RSPO initially avoided defining what sustainability means, and they just decided to go forward with the standards without defining that, which seems like (laughs) an important thing to do. They since have, but like, I, I think it is There's a lot of wiggle room in just the word sustainability, you know? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that is emblematic of the problem with the RSPO, that it's an organization that I think the people working there, my impression anyway, is that they really are trying their best and that they have a real intention to try to improve palm oil. But you have this push-pull of industry that really doesn't want to change that much and doesn't really see a reason to because consumers don't know what palm oil is. If they do, they want to kind of forget that it's in the items they're buying. And they also aren't willing to pay a price premium because they're explicitly usually buying the stuff because it's cheap. So companies don't really have any reason to try to be more sustainable on palm oil. We haven't made it enough of a consumer issue. And so these environmentalists are like punching at the RSPO saying, you suck, you're not good enough, which is true. It's not good enough. But companies are saying, hey, why are you dragging us this far? Like we were willing to work with you a little bit and now you're trying to pull us a lot further than we want to go. So it's a really tricky position for the RSPO to be in. I understand it. But the emphasis that the RSPO has on consensus decision making, which again is understandable, Um, can also make it incapable of dealing with contentious and controversial issues. And even the moderate stringency that the RSP already has, um, has led major stakeholders to leave. Well, and this is maybe a little bit off topic, but do you know if the auditors who check these plantations out, if they come from within the country or if they fly in from somewhere else? Because now COVID is really affecting the ability for people to visit other countries. And I don't know... I mean, if they're being inspected from outside, I, I, I don't know if that'll affect it too. 
So I don't specifically know for the RSPO, but usually auditors come from specific auditing firms and tends to be that they're not domestic. Yeah, that's what I thought. So it's just going to make enforcing these rules even more difficult in the future. Actually, one of the first RA gigs that I had was working with professors that had a book on this. So maybe I'll link to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you should. I don't know what the title is, but (laughs) I'll find it and link to it. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, sorry sorry for that. You can uh, carry on now. <laughs> no, no, it's a good point, right? So, and yeah, a, a third criticism, fourth, whatever number of criticism, <laughs> all the, <laughs> all the RSPO. <laughs> yeah, a final criticism, we'll say. <laughs> <laughs> Although the RSPO has recently devoted some attention to the issue, it's still very difficult for smallholder producers to afford certification. And they also have less of an incentive to get RSPO certified because especially small and medium producers are often, they're disproportionately supplying the like Indian, Chinese and Pakistani markets where they're selling it for cooking oil and there's not really demand for um, sustainable palm oil, which you would, you would charge at a higher price and get the price premium. And that's generally the incentive to have sustainability labels. So yeah, why is certification uptake so low? There's kind of an interesting situation here for palm oil, right? When you think about most sustainability labels with agricultural products, there's usually a specific consumer product that has a recognizable link to the agricultural product. So coffee, coffee beans to coffee, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> coffee. Yeah, but where, whereas uh, palm oil is, I think where you're going is it's in everything and nothing yes. is really, it could be, it could be in your lipstick and it could be in your chips. Yeah. And consumers mostly don't know there's palm oil in a product, which how could you? It's got 200 different names, which probably how companies want it. Mm-hmm. Producers mostly don't want to emphasize that there's palm oil in their items, Partially because palm oil has baggage and partially because palm oil is not usually the major ingredient in the product. And for that reason, it makes it more difficult to develop that price premium on certified palm oil. And even if companies like Unilever use RSPO certified palm oil and are buying the more expensive palm oil that's more sustainable, they're not necessarily going to put the label on their product because if they're selling you peanut butter... They don't want to emphasize that there's palm oil in the peanut butter. They want to emphasize the peanuts in the peanut yeah, butter. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So you're very rarely going to see RSPO certification on a product because consumers don't care enough to think about palm oil when they're buying everything. And they also mostly don't know. <laughs> there's so many other things to think about. <laughs> yeah. And it's not a thing that's going to be an advertising feature for most products. Which, which makes it harder to sell the business case for getting certified. Yeah, because really, you're just doing it out of the goodness of your heart. There's not a lot of financial motivation, which is, unfortunately, how the world tends to work. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's worth noting that I mean, we talked about the shift to palm oil and how it was a lot of, in a large part, driven by the fact that palm oil is super cheap. So if you make it more expensive, that again, might shift the calculus in terms of whether palm oil is really what you want to use. It just defeats the whole purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a difficult problem. I think if you get enough consumer pressure and information around palm oil, you can change that calculus and 
once you have enough consumers that care and there's enough certification, you can shift the entire industry practices, which is what RSPO is trying to do. They're trying to get expansion of the standard to be large enough that it shifts the entire industry. So they're trying to like create a big tent, but doing so while they have stringent enough sustainability standards that it matters. And that's like, gosh, that's just such a hard balance to strike. I feel for them. We need this episode to go viral, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) You can really help them out if you care about sustainable. (laughs) Everybody, everybody listen to this. (laughs) So... A lot of times when people talk about palm oil, the frame is, should you boycott or should you support sustainability certification? Do you, do you have thoughts on that now that you've, you know, now that I've told you all these things, <laughs> just spoken at you? <laughs> now I have uh, all of the information. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess uh, to, <laughs> to me, it just feels like fine. Like, uh, Shoot, I don't know, because the sustainability label is so flawed that in some cases it might be even making the situation worse. I don't I don't know, I, because like my my initial reaction, like my gut reaction is to go for the sustainability logo because there are no alternatives and people need vegetable oil. That's just how it is. So considering there's no alternatives... And I guess the more you choose the sustainability-backed items, the bigger the sustainability logo is going to get, and the more work they'll be able to do, and the better they'll become. So I guess that's where I'm landing. (laughs) That's more or less where I land, too. I think people could reasonably come down on different sides on this. But I come down on the sustainability side, sustainability certification side, rather than boycotting palm oil, largely because, yeah, you're right. It's ubiquitous because it's cheap, but there are no real alternatives that wouldn't cause problems. So I think it would be counterproductive to suggest that we switch to an alternative vegetable oil. I don't don't know. I think just think the best you can do is to try to remember that consumers have power. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, this is a podcast about ethical consumption. And for the most part, every time we finish an episode, the biggest answer is consume less. You know, if I'm eating, if I'm eating fewer bags of chips, it's better for my body and it's better for the planet. So I don't know. Well, in this case, I think it might just be consume palm oil differently, right? Yeah, that's true, too. First, start by looking for social and environmental certifications. So assuming that you've decided you're not going to go palm oil free, The RSPO is better than nothing. Is it perfect? No, it's not even close to perfect. It's not great, but it it is better than nothing. And it is a standard where there's a legitimate effort there. So I think picking that team and deciding to go for it is a good choice with palm oil. If you're trying to figure out what, what brands might have RSPO certification, you can go to the World Wildlife Fund website. They have a palm oil buyer's scorecard. I've got that in the research notes, uh, so you can click on the link there. And they have a list of brands that it shows who's an RSPO member or not, and then um, whether they've committed to only sourcing sustainable palm oil. The other thing that you can do is look at the Rainforest Action Network's recommendation, which is that you you look for palm oil that only has Palm Oil Innovation Group or POIG certification, 
which is the, the only standard that they see as being truly free of deforestation, peatland destruction, and exploitation. And you might be thinking, oh, hey, here's this other stronger standard. Kristen, why didn't you mention it until the end of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the reason for it is it's basically like a new initiative that is an add-on to the RSPO. So all POIG retailers and manufacturers are RSPO members. That's a lot of acronyms, but hopefully y'all <laughs> followed me there. Uh, <laughs> and they have to be RSPO certified. So it's basically a stronger version of that RSPO. POIG doesn't have very many certified products right now, but it might be the solution in the future. And at the very least, showing support where you can for POIG helps to pull the RSPO to be a more progressive standard, which I think most of our listeners will want. Some noteworthy POIG members include Danone, L'Oreal, and Calibo. So there are a couple of brands that have signed on, not super many, but some of them. Actually, speaking of brands that have signed on to sustainability missions, uh, when I was looking to see if McDonald's used palm oil in their french fries, because I really wanted french fries during our challenge, <laughs> I found they have like a whole web page that they, they've, they've teamed up with the RSPO and they're like, yeah, we're going to try and source 100% renewable palm. And I'm like, okay, Cool McDonald's. I like this greenwashing. <laughs> yeah, it's not perfect, but it's good. <laughs> Better than nothing, which also feels like the motto of our podcast. The motto of our podcast. We need to learn how to say that in Latin and then get it, <laughs> get it printed up. <laughs> Anyways, you, you were saying important stuff. That was stuff. a nice callback. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if I'm... Um, if you can't find POIG for what you're looking for, another option might be to, to try to balance workers' rights by supporting the RSPO smallholder standard. So if you can find palm oil that was produced from smallholders, that can be beneficial. And another option is it's a not explicitly a fair trade label because fair trade doesn't have palm oil standards yet, but there's a label that's substantively like fair trade called fair palm. And it's a label for palm oil that's grown by smallholders in West Africa. So if you can find any products that are produced with fair palm, you can feel pretty good, at least about the worker's angle. They also have some commitments to environmental sustainability. You can also try doubling up to get uh, palm oil that is organic and RSPO certified. So our organic labels, again, they only deal with like pesticides and fertilizers. So on their own, they can't address the problems of deforestation and, you know, biodiversity loss and those other problems that we talked about. So for that, you really do need to lean on the RSPO, even though it's imperfect. But if you double up and get something that's RSPO and organic, then you can know that workers weren't harmed by chemical use. So that's kind of nice. Um, if you are looking for a tool that you can use, the Ethical Consumer, which is a, a website and magazine, has worst and best ratings, and they've created lists of brands that are worst and best for palm oil. So some brands that you might want to avoid, they have listed as uh, Nestle, uh, Mondelez, which apparently does Cadbury, Domino's Pizza, uh, Pizza Hut, KFC, Subway, uh, TGI Fridays, Pizza Express, 
L'Occitane, the like um, perfume company, and then Procter and Gamble, which just makes all kind of stuff. But one of their brands is Head and Shoulders. So you can go to Ethical Consumers website to look for more brands on that list. Those were just some of the ones that popped out at me. There were many, 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 many more. I must <laughs> emphasize that. <laughs> They also have a list of recommended brands, and those are the brands that got their best rating for palm oil use. Um, so Ethical Consumer is a British publication, and a lot of the times, the worst performers on like any metric, they're oftentimes big companies, so I often recognize them. And the best performers, sometimes they're big companies, but a lot of times they're like small British chains or small British shops. So I oftentimes don't recommend them or don't recognize them. I recommend them. I'm sure they're great. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in the UK and nowhere else. <laughs> yeah. But it means that like when you're going through these best of lists, a lot of the time with ethical consumer, I'm just wading through and I'm like, I don't recognize any of these brands. So I'll, I'll list the ones that I recognized. So the top two are British, but I recognize them because they're fairly well known. So Marks and Spencer got their best rating. Waitrose also got their best rating. And then the last, th the last three, so the first one was Lush. Yeah, Lush. Of course. <laughs> Lush actually, um, so a lot of my personal care products are through Lush. And so for our challenge, I wasn't going to replace the stuff even if they turned out to not do so well, although I already knew that Lush is pretty good on most ethical criteria. Um, but I looked through their palm oil and they actually have this whole page that is like, bruh, we looked at palm oil and it was tough. <laughs> and they go through the whole thing. At least they're straight about it. They're like, yeah, man. Like, and they're like, wow, we heard about palm oil and the orangutans and we were like, fuck. And then, you know, we were like, okay, we'll just get RSPO certified. And then we heard that that sucked. And so then we thought we'd go palm oil three, but then we learned that like, we can't do that because there's literally nothing else that'll foam your shampoo bar the way that it does. So, <laughs> so there's like this whole story that they go through. And now they're trying to phase out pommel because that's what they've decided is best. But they're they're sort of not there yet. Anyway, another brand on their the best list was Nivea, which is another sort of like personal care brand. And then I just want to give a shout out to Georganics, even though I don't think most people will have heard of it because... Uh, that's where both of our floss is from. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, shout out, shout out. <laughs> Waste-free mouthwash tablets. So yeah, you can, you can try to find good brands or at the very least try to avoid the worst brands. And then the last thing you can do, which we always recommend on this podcast, is get involved, aka yell at your member of parliament. <laughs> <laughs> so get involved with campaigns that are asking companies to implement sustainable palm oil practices if you're looking for where those campaigns are, just Google Greenpeace Palm Oil or Rainforest Action Network Palm Oil. Those are two of the big environmental ones. And then you can also just click, if you go into our research notes, we've listed a bunch of NGOs um, as sources for the various problems. And most of those NGOs will have corresponding campaigns. So lots of ways to find petitions to sign. I promise you there will be no shortage of that. And then you can also write companies that you love to tell them to use uh, sustainable palm oil because it tells them that the people that buy their products care. Yeah. I mean, I emailed McDonald's, a company I have a very <laughs> complicated relationship with. <laughs> <laughs> Which, <laughs> <laughs> 
And they had no idea, but they tr- they're trying. I'm sure I'll hear back from them eventually. <laughs> but I, I mean, I found their they're palm oil page it. and I looked at their UK site and they look like they're doing their best. <laughs> You've got the two employees that are escalating this, like really spending their day on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Well, I feel like I'm more informed. I hope that our listeners feel that way, too. You always do such thorough research. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can't start linking to our research notes page directly in our feed so you guys don't even have to go to our website we'll see uh, what i can do there but if you do want to reach out to us directly you can get us on twitter it's at pullback podcast uh and our, the, our next challenge starts tomorrow we're going to be doing uh, plastic free july but we're doing it a month early so that you guys can listen to what we have to say on that and then do your own plastic free july challenge which we i have done it once before and it's uh if you want to really challenge yourself, it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, and um, Kyla, I would just like to also point out that we're doing this in a pandemic where many stores have no reusable bag policies. <laughs> yeah, I've thought about that. Um, so we're going to talk about that for sure. <laughs> like this challenge wasn't going to be tough enough. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you soon. And, uh, you know, stay home, stay safe. Okay, that's your recording and it sounds good. Let's just check mine. <laughs> oh, it sounds amazing. All right. <laughs> all right, mine sounds all right, but yours sounds amazing. Well, I'm I turned sorry. mine up. I turned mine up. Yours was very, very quiet, uh, but yeah, I'm sure it's also incredible.